Hmm. Okay. Um, so, papers are due March 15th. You'll remember. Um, and you'll probably also, or you may not remember, um, that basically what you want to do is a close reading by a poem. Uh, see, they are the worst. That's an empirical fact for you. You want to do right by a poem. <laughs> so you want to do a close reading by a poem <laughs> whose author is one of the authors that we have done good readings by. Okay? Does that all make sense? You want to do close reading by a, of a poem by a poet um, whom we've already talked about. Uh, there are plenty of other poems by those poets in the Norton Anthology. Um, also, there are plenty of poems by them in the wild. Um, so if you want to go um, hunting um, their poems down in the wild, that would be good too. Um, but a close reading of the sort that we've been doing. Um, eventually, we're going to do a novella. Um, and then um, after that radical break with our usual practice, we'll get back to poetry. So that'll be good. Um, OK, what I wanted to do was read you. We're going to do Mont Blanc today. How many times do you all read it? <laughs> twice, twice, okay. once, once. One and a half. I was in the middle of reading it again. <laughs> Having started reading it 10 minutes ago, the first time? No. I oh, OK, I read all right. What about you? I read it twice, and now I'm, I'm, I'm writing it. OK, are, are we liking it? Yeah. OK, good. Do you see that it's the intimations out? No, you don't. Okay. But what isn't the intimations out? Quick, give me a poem that isn't the intimations out. Any poem that's not the intimations out. <laughs> um, Any poem at all, ever. Uh, or in the last 200 years. I thought it was a Lorax, but. No, that's the intimations out. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Nature, change, destruction, oh, dude. Oh, man. Totally the intimations out. <laughs> Raven. Oh, come on. Nevermore? Are you kidding? <laughs> okay. See? Good. Um, all right. What I wanted to do was read you um, the beginning of book three of Paradise Lost. So how many people have read Paradise Lost at some point? I asked this once. Um, okay. Um, so you know that Paradise Lost uh, tells the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, and it is for the romantic poets. We talked about this. We talked about um, Milton's relation to those who follow him, to Shelley and to um, Wordsworth and so on. For the romantic poets, this is um, more than Shakespeare, the most um, important influence on their writing. Um, and one thing that I mentioned before um, the uh, the theory of influence that Harold Bloom, not Blum, by the way, but Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, um, is uh, associated with what he calls the anxiety of influence. Um, where what makes you want to be a poet is um, an uneasy <coughs> and maybe fundamentally inconsistent relationship between the idea of poetry as something that blows you away 
because you read it, because you've read it, because you learned that there is such a thing as poetry, and therefore comes to you from outside yourself, is before you, is something that um, comes from someone else, and poetry as um, the deepest and most, um, most possessed by you um, mode of self-expression. So the paradox of poetry, of great poetry, of any poetry that anyone feels is great, um, the paradox of that poetry for the individual person who feels that some poem is really great, is that it seems to be one's own self-expression, and yet it comes from elsewhere. And that's a paradox that poets in particular feel. Um, that you will, if you are starting out as a poet, or even if you're not starting out as a poet, even if you've been a poet for a very long time, what you'll keep finding is that you want to write lines that other people have written. Um, the phrases, the effects, the gestures, the moments, the... Um, uh, um, outpourings that come from you actually come from elsewhere. And so the question is, what do poets do when confronted with that? And one way of answering that, um, we talked a little bit about this, um, when we talked about epigraphs, one way of answering that is if you can feel that it's kind of accidental that the poem you liked so much was so good. If you can make yourself feel somehow that the poet who wrote that poem that you liked so much actually kind of lucked into that series of words. If you can own a poem more than the poet who wrote it, if you can make it your own in a way that the poet who wrote it um, didn't make it her own. Um, and we talked about how there's a sense that Bishop does that with that great line, the boy stood on the burning deck. Yeah. Wasn't Harold Ludemann who had the theory about <coughs> poets become poets to write better versions of the poems that change their lives? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the tweet version of what I've just said. Didn't, didn't Shelley say that, um, that, that like poets are like prophets and they're just reinterpreting the, the same poems and stuff, and so they're not, they're not like trying to make it better, and it's not like a personal thing, it's like they're putting it in the words of their time. Well, he, no, he didn't quite say that. Um, what he's, what Gusto essay was about. Gusto is Hazlitt. Oh, um, Shelley, in his defense of poetry, does say that poets are prophets, though. They are, they are the higher offense of an unapprehended inspiration. They are the trumpets that sing to battle and feel not what they inspire. They are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Um, that's the very end of the defense of poetry. Um, so the idea is that they are the trumpets that sing to battle and feel not what they inspire. It's a complex image because as trumpets, they are both making the sound, but it's also the trumpeter who's making the sound. Um, and so on the one hand, it's if, if you're the trumpet and Milton is the trumpeter, um, who's responsible for the sound? Um, well, in some sense, Milton, or Miles Davis, someone beginning M-I-L, um, is, okay, Monday morning, I know, but just, that was pretty fast, if you think about it. Milton, Miles, M-I-L, no. Uh. 
Oh, all right. I see that this is not singing you to battle. Um, <laughs> on the one hand, Milton or Miles. On the other hand, um, without the trumpet, they're nothing. Without the trumpet, they can't do anything. Um, so it's somehow the resonance in you of stuff that comes from elsewhere, but the resonance in you matters. And again, think of that line. They're the trumpets that sing to battle and feel not what they inspire. The word inspire there is a standard word from poetry. It's what muses do, right? What does inspire literally mean? To breathe in. As in respire or respiration is breath. It's the it's a repetition of breath. Um, the process of respiration is breathing um, over and over again. Um, expiration is to breathe your last, or for the milk to breathe its last, or for the library book to breathe its last. Um, and inspiration is to breathe in, or to be if you're inspired, you have been you have been breathed into. Um, so the trumpets are both breathed into by the trumpeter. The trumpeter blows into the trumpet, but the trumpet also inspires others. So it's in this sort of um, transitional place in that, in that image, where it's both something inspired by the trumpeter and something that then inspires others, replaces the trumpeter as itself the source of inspiration. Um, anyhow, this idea that somehow poetry is both within you and without you, inspiration is the perfect image for that because something is breathed into you, but then it is within you. And the standard view of who breathes into the poet is the muse. The reason there is so much obsession with the idea of the muse in Western poetry is because it captures something really deep about a poet's relation to his or her own vocation as a poet. That's really what, well, I don't know, the Intimations Ode is about. Um, that is that the world used to be inspiring to me, and now it isn't. Where will I find my inspiration? Well, I can find it within myself. I can find my inspiration in the fact that the world no longer inspires. That's another way of putting what we were saying before. But at any rate, the great inspiration for the Romantics was Milton. And what the Romantics persistently tried to do to and for Milton was, we've talked about this already, to secularize him, to make Milton's poetry being about human experience rather than Christian or Judeo-Christian experience. <coughs> so where Milton thought, or where at least the Romantics thought, Milton thought, that he was describing um, and making vivid a religious story, the story of Genesis um, with some Christian super editions, but the story of Genesis. What the Romantics thought he was doing was seeing the truth but misapprehending it as a single one-time religious story rather than as the story that every real human being undergoes. And so they secularize it. They said the story is right, the poetry is right, but the plot is wrong. 
the plot structure is right, but the plot details are wrong. What Milton says about Adam and Eve is actually what I, Wordsworth, will say about myself, what I, Shelley, will say about myself, what I, Blake, will say about myself. Um, I am the one who's fallen. It's not that Adam and Eve 6,000 years ago did this. It's that this happened to me and happened to me in the last few years. Um, and it had nothing to do with God or Satan. It had to do with life itself, much deeper than God or Satan. Um, Wordsworth, at the beginning of a poem which, thank God, he never finished, um, but he wrote a prospectus to it, um, talks about, and the prospectus is really great, he talks, in, it's a poetic prospectus. Um, if you're thinking of senior theses, you should realize you can write your prospectuses in poetry. Um, he talks about going, rising up followed by his muse. Um, and he says, Jehovah and his saints, I pass them unalarmed and pass beyond the heaven of heavens. And he goes on, into the human heart. No, I pass every heaven. Into the human heart to which the heaven of heavens is but a veil. The human heart, which is the chief region or the chief haunt and main region of my song. So Wordsworth says, my muse inspires me to just leave all that Miltonic stuff about God and Jehovah and the cherubim and the seraphim and the angels and the universe and the creation of time and space and, and the destruction thereof. All of that, you know, that's just kid stuff. I just go whizzing right past that to the highest chief haunt and main region of my song, which is way beyond that, the human heart. So that's Wordsworth, you could say, saying, you know, Milton got, got it right in a kind of cartoon version. He thought it was all about God and the angels. And yeah, that's, what it, that's, that's the kid's stuff. That's the kid's version of what it was really all about which is the human heart. So I wanted to, I mean, it's, it's a misreading of Milton and um, Bloom's um, most famous book. It's not his most famous book anymore, but for a while it was his most famous book. It was a book called A Map of Misreading. And what his idea in A Map of Misreading is, is that poets always misread the, poet, the poets who are most important to them. That first they read them and then they think, well, if that poet meant everything that I would mean, that would be terrible. But they can't have. They meant something less important than what I'm meaning. Um, Bloom thinks both moves are misreadings. That is, when you find everything you would mean in a poet that you read, you're misreading. You're projecting your own poetic vocation onto that poet. But then when you deny that you found that stuff in the poet, you also misread the poet more, more willfully. And, but all of that misreading for Bloom is the way you both sense that you want to be a poet because a poem strikes you as great, even if you know that it's striking you as great for reasons that aren't true to what the original poet meant. And also when you decide that, no, that poem wasn't so great. This is the great poem. So the reason I'm, I'm telling you this is that what I want to do, and this will also be a good segue into Mont Blanc, 
is read you the very beginning of book three of Paradise Lost. What's happened is the first two books of Paradise Lost <coughs> occur in hell. Um, Satan, Paradise Lost begins with Satan waking up after being stunned into unconsciousness with all the rebel angels um, after they've fallen from heaven into hell. They have been driven out of heaven by God and his son, or the, by, by his son in particular. Um, they have fallen all the way to hell, and now they lie stunned and unconscious on a burning lake, a lake that burns with liquid fire. And eventually Satan wakes up and finds himself there, and he can't believe it. But he rouses all the other rebel angels. Um, they are surrounded not by light, but darkness visible, which serves only to discover sights of woe. Um, but he rouses them, and they get to land which burns with solid as the lake with liquid fire. And on land, they decide what they are going to do now. And being angels, the fact that everything is burning and that they're in constant pain is something they never complain about. They are above that. They refuse to have their spirits broken by the endless torture and pain that they undergo. But instead, they decide what to do. And um, some of them then uh, while away the time by playing music, and some while away the time by discussing philosophy. All of this in fire and in pain. Um, extraordinary image, but it's an image of utter darkness, two books of Paradise Lost that are utterly dark, written by the blind poet Milton. So Milton had lost his sight something like permanently. He, um, he, he um, went blind gradually, but permanently about seven or eight years before he started writing Paradise Lost. Um, as you may or may not know, Oliver Sacks actually has some interesting essays on this. Um, when people lose their sight as adults, one of two things can happen. One is that um, they can preserve in their brains um, an, extraordinarily, an extraordinary visual sense. Um, they can still remember and, and repeat for themselves the visual qualities of the world. And um, their, visual, their, their visual imagination can be enhanced by losing their eyesight. Or the other thing that can happen is they can forget entirely what seeing is like. Um, they can forget. This tends to happen especially to people who lose their, their eyesight very young, is they don't know what they don't have. That is, they know that people have this sense of seeing, just as we know that bats can find mosquitoes by echolocation. They just don't know what it is. Um, even if they did see once, um, their visual cortex gets, re, um, gets recruited to other uses. Milton was of the first type. Milton's visual <coughs> powers, his powers of visualization, became utterly intense after he went blind, as though he was no longer disturbed by the everyday visuals of the everyday world. Um, his visual imagination became of hallucinatory intensity. Um, so he now blind, but now writing the first book in Paradise Lost set in heaven, the region of light, the precincts of light, rather than in hell, which is the region of darkness. He begins by addressing a kind of muse, and that muse is light. And what I'm going to read you is just the beginning, the first lines of Book Three of Paradise Lost, just so you can hear how much this is echoing in Wordsworth's head in the Intimations Ode. 
Hail, holy light, says Milton. So he hails light. Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven, firstborn, or of the eternal, co-eternal beam. May I express the unblamed. Since God is light and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee, bright effluence of bright essence in create. That means the uncreated <coughs> effluence of an uncreated essence. God is a bright essence, and flowing out of him because he's bright is this bright effluence, this outflow, uncreated, in create. Or here's that rather pure ethereal stream whose fountain who shall tell before the sun, before the heavens thou wert, and at the voice of God, as with a mantle, didst invest the rising world of waters dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. Thee I revisit now with bolder wing, escaped the Stygian pool, though long detained in that obscure sojourn, while in my flight through utter and through middle darkness born with other notes than to the Orphean lyre I sung of chaos and eternal night. So he's describing the first two books. doesn't matter if you're not getting most of this. Um, it'll become a little bit easier when it becomes a little bit more wordsworthy in, in a couple of lines. I sung of chaos and eternal night, taught by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend, though hard and rare. And again, he addresses light. Thee I revisit safe back to the regions of light, thee I revisit safe, and feel thy sovereign vital lamp. But thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. So thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled. So I'm back in light, but the light doesn't revisit my eyes because I'm blind. So I return to the regions of light, but I can't see. You don't revisit my eyes. And then he goes on, yet not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt. Excuse me, yet not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill, smit with the love of sacred song. So notice, even though I'm blind, I don't cease to wander. This place is where the music muses haunt, clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill. So what does Wordsworth turn that into? There was a time. Yeah, I can see the things that I have seen, I now can see no more. Um, but there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. So he's still wandering meadow, grove, and stream, or in Milton it's spring, grove, and hill. Clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill, smit with the love of sacred song. But chief thee, Zion, and the flowery brooks beneath that wash thy hallowed feet, and warbling flow, nightly I visit. So think how amazing that is, that even though I can't see, I still wander the precincts of light. And chiefly you, Mount Zion, 
every night I wander the precincts of light, because he composes at night. Nor sometimes forget those other two equaled with me in fate. So were I equaled with them in renown. So he remembers other blind poets. And then he names them blind Thamorous. Anyone who know who Thamorous is? Um, <coughs> Thamorous is mentioned in the Iliad as a poet who challenged the muses to a singing contest, which is a mistake, and he lost. And Homer says, I hope this doesn't matter to me, because what happened to Thamorous was, because he lost, they destroyed his memory, and he could no longer sing, and they made him blind. So, but Homer is thinking of Thamorous, because Homer is also blind. So Milton is thinking, is saying, I remember those other two poets who had the same fate as I did. That is that they were blind. Blind Thamorous and blind Myonides. Myonides is another name for Homer. And he also remembers two prophets, and Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old. They were blind. They wrote. They prophesied. I hope to do the same. And when I do that, then I feed on thoughts that voluntarily move harmonious numbers as the wakeful bird sings darkling. So the wakeful bird who sings darkling is the nightingale. And in shadiest covert head tunes her nocturnal note. Thus with the year seasons return, but not to me returns day or the sweet approach of even or morn or sight of vernal bloom or summer's rose or flocks or herds or human face divine. A wonderful Miltonic phrase, human face divine. <coughs> the human face is itself divine. Milton writes in a kind of Latinate diction where the adjective can follow a noun or where two adjectives can frame a noun. And that effect, the human face divine, is one of the great effects he can get out of that. And he says, that's what I don't see, the human face divine. But cloud instead and ever during dark surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men cut off and for the book of knowledge fair presented with a universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out. So it's a terrible description of blindness. He doesn't say, see human faces. He doesn't see nature itself. Everything is gone from him. Morning and spring and seasons do not return to him. And so he says, so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward and the mind through all her powers irradiate their plant eyes all mist from thence disperse purge and disperse that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight so notice what he calls upon he doesn't get the light of the earth anymore so what light does he call upon celestial, celestial light so it's clear that Wordsworth that that phrase there was a time when meadow grove and stream the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of, the, of a dream. It's clear that Wordsworth is describing as a sighted singer what happens when you lose the kind of light that Milton says he still has. Milton was blind but still saw celestial light. Wordsworth could see 
but lost celestial light. And he says that was a more terrible blindness, a more terrible fall. Milton has a great sonnet, just to stick with this for one more minute, which I'm pretty sure is in here, and if it is, we should look at it. Um, actually, if there are two poems in here, we'll look at them both. Um, we're just really, really, really... Um, yeah, page 419. Um, zipping through this this Monday morning. So what happened was Milton, um, after he was blind, Milton was married three times. Um, and after he was blind, he married a woman, and then she died. Um, and he had a dream about her. It's, um, it begins on page 419. It's the sonnet, the last sonnet he ever, he ever wrote. Uh, Milton's sonnets are generally known by their first lines, so this is the sonnet um, called Me Thought I Saw My Latest Spouse's Saint. Um, and what I want to do is look at this sonnet and a sonnet by Wordsworth. Um, again, you can see Wordsworth, even in the depth of his grief, getting something like the terms of his grief for Milton. So, we'll just do this quickly. Methought I saw my latest spouse at Saint. That is, I had a dream that I saw the saintly woman. Saint actually here means a good person who's dead. Um, and who he therefore takes to be a saint in heaven. Um, he thought I saw my latest spouse, a saint, brought to me like Alcestis from the grave. So what happens is Alcestis is married to King Admetus. Admetus is told that he must die. He says, is there nothing I can do about it? Um, and is told by, by the gods, well, if you can find someone who's willing to take your place. So he asks his parents, but they say no. Um, he asks his friends, but they say no. He asks various people, they all say no. Um, and he's going to have to die, and finally his wife, Alcestis, says, I'll die for you, and he says, that's great, thank you. Um, then he feels guilty um, after she dies. Um, Hercules comes visiting, and um, Hercules says, why the long face? And he explains what's happened, and Hercules says, let me see what I can do. And he brings her back from the dead. It's one of the great um, Greek stories, his great tragedy by Euripides about it, um, called Alcestis. So um, notice that this is a kind of Miltonic idea, that one human would die for another. That's what Jesus does. Um, but also that someone would go to hell and save the dead human and bring them back to life, which is also what Jesus does. So he has a dream of his late wife, whom he married, whom he met and married after he went blind. And notice, therefore, how important the third word of this sonnet is. This was a dream, and what happens in the dream? I thought, I saw her. And there are two reasons that that's impossible. <coughs> One, she's dead, and the other is, I'm blind. And yet, that's what I dreamt. Me thought I saw my latest spouse at Saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave, whom Jove's great son to her glad husband gave, rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. So that's the story. Jove's great son is Hercules, and that's the story of Hercules saving Alcestis from the grave. So that's so I thought that she was back just like that. Mine, that is my 
wife, not Ed Metis's wife. And then we get a long um, parenthetical phrase before we get to the verb. Mine is the subject. The verb for mine is going to be came vested all in white. So just so you see the, gram the structure of this sentence. Mine, as whom washed from spot of childbed taint, <coughs> purification in the old law did save, and such as yet once more I trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint, came vested all in white. So she was in white as though she had been purified at the mikvah after giving birth. She died in childbirth, but now she comes back as though purified of death after childbirth and looking just as I trust to have full sight of her in paradise when I die. Mine came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled for many reasons. Veiled because she's the bride and she's in white, but veiled also because he doesn't know what she looks like. The human face divine he cannot see. Mine came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, love, sweetness, goodness in her person shined so clear as in no face with more delight. But oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. So he dreams that he sees her and she ends to embrace him. And he tries to embrace her back and instead wakes up and she's gone. And day brought back my night. So that's another poem you can imagine the Intimations Ode is thinking about. But take one, take one more look at a poem by Wordsworth. Um, this is page 804 and is one of the few good poems that he wrote after age 40. <clears throat> it's a poem called Surprised by Joy. And what's happened is his daughter Catherine died before she was three years old. Terrible blow to him. And now it's, oh, they say at age four. I don't think that's right, though. Um, now it's a couple of years later, after she's died, and he writes this sonnet, surprised by joy. He never thought he'd feel joy again. Surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I turn to share the transport. Oh, with whom but thee, deep buried in the silent tomb, that spot which no vicissitude can find. So. This is a little bit like the opening of Me Thought I Saw My Latest Spouse at Saint. That is, something surprising happened. And I turned to you, who are dead. Surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I turned to share the transport. Oh, with whom but thee, deep buried in the silent tomb, that spot which no vicissitude can find. Love. Faithful love recall thee to my mind. So now there's a huge and amazing, I think what I won't do is pause on this, but notice that, because if you want to write on this sonnet, the 
it's a good sonnet to write on. But notice there's an ambiguity in line five. When is she recalled to his mind? Is that a description of being surprised by joy, or is it descript being a description of realizing that she's dead? Love, faithful love, recall thee to my mind, but how could I forget thee? Through what power, even for the least division of an hour, have I been so beguiled as to be blind to my most grievous loss? That thought's return was the worst pang that sorrow ever bore, save one, one only. When I stood forlorn, knowing my heart's best treasure was no more, that neither present time nor years unborn could to my sight that heavenly face restore. So that's one of the most moving poems ever written. But notice that it's moving in the same way that Milton's Methought I Saw My Latest Basil Saint is. That is, that it's a dream that someone's alive or a forgetfulness that someone is dead. And then a reminder, I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. Nothing could to my sight that heavenly face restore. For Wordsworth, it's not even a dream. I can't even dream of that heavenly face. It won't even be restored to me in a dream. So don't think of this as a game, this competition between poets as a kind of game where a poet says, oh yeah, no, I'm really, I'm the man. Um, that's not what it is. It's that what's deepest in you is somehow also coming from elsewhere. And therefore, in a sense, poems about loss are poems about things that don't come from elsewhere because they're about what's not yours anymore. There's a reason that poems are about loss. Because if you love poetry, and if you, your poetic vocation comes from loving poetry, then you can't yourself possess the poetry that you love, but you can certainly possess your own loss. There's a great line by the contemporary British poet Geoffrey Hill um, in, a, in a book called The Songbook of Sebastian Aruruth, um, which is, uh, Sebastian Aruruth is a poet who is lamenting um, the woman who has left him. And he reminds himself, one cannot lose what one does not possess. That's a kind of self-castigation. One cannot lose what one does not possess. And then he dismisses it. So much for that abrasive gem. I can lose what I want. I want you. So just think about that for a second. One cannot lose what one does not possess. So much for that abrasive gem. I can lose what I want. I want you. Yeah, what we can lose are the things we want. That's what he's saying. Okay, let us go to the beginning of Mont Blanc. Um, page 9. No, what, what page? 866. And um, we'll just do the very, very start. Um, it's in five parts, and we'll do part one right now. Um, has anyone seen Mont Blanc? Anyone know what it looks like? 
Um, so it's this amazing mountain. It's um, partly in France, partly in Switzerland, and partly in Italy. It's at the place where the three countries come together. Tallest mountain in Europe. Um, at the time that Shelley wrote this poem, it had been climbed once, although I'm not sure he knew it. But essentially, it's this spectacular sight that um, you see from this, this ice-bound valley below. Um, it's all, not so much now, but in <coughs> 1818, all covered with glacier, and the glaciers go way down um, the slope of the mountain into the valley or Vale of Chamonix. Um, if you've read Frankenstein, um, Percy and Mary Shelley visited Mont Blanc in June um, of, I think it was 1819, um, and Shelley wrote this, no, 1816, in July <coughs> of 1816. Um, Shelley wrote this poem in the next couple of days, and Mary Shelley wrote um, the scene in which Victor Frankenstein finds the monster um, when he's visiting Mont Blanc, and that's the first scene where they confront each other, um, and then the monster goes running, running away on the glaciers where, where Victor Frankenstein can't chase him. Only a supernatural figure could do that. Um, they've both seen it, and they were both blown away by um, its unbelievable spectacularity. Um, so there he is looking in the mountain and you should, this is a poem written in one day, see it as a poem inspired by the mountain. And what he writes is the everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves. Paraphrase. Okay, nice. You can never go wrong by quoting Wordsworth in any <laughs> context, really. Um, okay, why light? Um, I don't know. I just said that. I mean, the everlasting universe kind of seemed mostly light. I think so. I imagine that that is like if the universe is flowing through his head, then it's kind of like inspiration and it's kind of like divine light. Okay. Maybe the universe is mostly dark, astronomically speaking. Uh huh. Which makes it light again. Which would pass through things that aren't solid. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, Isabel? I was going to say, um, in general, it's probably the, the um, impression that the, um, <coughs> this, <coughs> this sight um, is affecting him um, in a way that it sort of keeps going through him. Okay. Um, what do you think of the word things? What does that do? The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind. It what almost sounds like he couldn't, you know, the visual I get is him standing on Mont Blanc kind of looking at everything and just saying the entire, the everlasting universe of things. <laughs> There's just no other, no other word. Um, is that a good word or a bad word, though, for you? For me, it's a good word because it expresses the inexpressibility of everything that is coming at him. Okay. Um, yeah. I feel like things also make something intangible tangible. Okay. Like, because he couldn't say what it is, like, it's still something that brings images as opposed to just kind of the everlasting universe. Okay. 
Yeah. It may seem like like it's just things, but when it's in the mind, it becomes a lot more, and the mind like gets its its source of wonder from that. But that the things themselves aren't—they're just things. They're not as amazing as they become in the mind. Okay, thing is a really odd word um, when you think when you think about it. Um, they actually have the same root, think and thing, um, and thank as well. Um, but it's a really, uh, it is an odd word if you think about it, um, because it seems simultaneously to apply to everything, um, hence the word everything. Um, the great philosopher um, W.B. Quine has a wonderful essay called On What There Is, and it just begins. Um, the ontological question, that is the question on being, um, has the merit of being able to be um, um, asked very simply, what is there? And the answer is equally simple, everything. So ask the basic philosophical question, what is there? And the answer is everything. So, so, um, so thing can range from everything. There's not a thing that isn't a thing. Life and the mind and being and um, snow and ice and snails and thumbtacks, they're all things. If you listed everything, you would be listing all of those things. Life, the soul, thumbtacks. But on the other hand, it does feel like it's a listing that's a reduction. It separates things out. It's just a thing, you thing of darkness, to quote. Shakespeare on, on um, Caliban, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mind. My, excuse me, I, no, I don't acknowledge mind, I acknowledge mine. Um, in words where some of you will know his poem, A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, where um, Wordsworth uses the word thing in a very odd way. A slumber did my spirit seal, I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. She seemed a thing. But that's like, oh, you poor thing. Um, no, but then she dies. No motion hath she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. Rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. Those are things. Rocks and stones and trees. That's what I thought she was like. Just a thing like that. Um, you will see in um, that one of the crucial questions on many, many pages of crucial questions in Turn of the Screw is the governess will say to Flora, my dear, where are your things? And she replies, my dear, where are yours? But the word thing, I hope it's starting to sound weird to you. The word thing is a weird word. Um, but the question is, do you want to live in a universe of things, or do you want to live in a universe of thoughts or feelings? Um, it's a word with an implied contrast. Otherwise, you would just say the everlasting universe. But what kind of universe is he talking about? Oh, we're talking about the universe of things. There's an implied contrast there, but we don't know what it's contrasting with, which makes it interesting. It's like, what's the difference between a duck? Which is a Marx Brothers line. What's the difference between a duck? Um, a rabbit? I don't know. Um, so the everlasting universe of things as opposed to what? 
the universe of nothing or the universe of souls or ideas? We don't know. Or there's something else of things. Yeah. The king is a thing. Where's that from? Hamlet. Hamlet. The king is a thing. A thing, my lord, of nothing. Yeah, it's quite an insult. It's a shocking thing for Hamlet to say. A shocking thing for Hamlet to say. Um, so the everlasting universe of things flows through the mind. What's the surprise in the first word of the second line? Flows. Yeah, you don't think of things as flowing. So there in that enchantment is something surprising. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves. Just notice the contrast in those images. Um, Shelley is thinking of the most famous, the shortest famous sentence in all of philosophy. You know what the shortest sentence in the Bible is? The shortest biblical verse? This is something you should know if you ever get on Jeopardy. Jesus wept. That's the entire verse. Um, an equally short sentence in the history of philosophy is Heraclitus, um, who's, one of whose very famous aphorisms is Ponta Rei. That's in Greek. I actually saw a store the other day called Ponta Rei, which means, do you know? It's everything. Ponta is everything, as in um, Pan-American, P-A-N, meaning all. Ponta, all things, rei, flow. So everything flows. That's Heraclitus. Very famous sentence about what the universe is. It's always changing. Everything flows. Um, Shelley is certainly thinking of that. Um, okay, so you've read it one and a half times, some of you too. Read it another couple of times for Wednesday, and we will go a little farther into it.